Welcome along to the Go Play Soccer podcast with host Manchester United Academy coach Tom Statham. At Go Play, our aim is to bring people together from all across the world to discuss the beautiful game. Tom Statham here, and today I'm pleased to be speaking with Sean O'Driscoll, an experienced player, coach, and manager, having worked at various clubs, including Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest, Bristol City, and Liverpool, before taking up his current position as head of coaching and learning at Portsmouth FC where he works alongside our second guest, Dr. Alex Twitchin, who is also a senior lecturer in sports coaching, practice and learning with the Open University here in the UK. Our third guest is Steve Davis, who is the technical director for the FSA Club in Connecticut, USA. Welcome, everyone, to the Go Play Soccer Podcast. Thanks, Tom. And Sean, we're going to start with you. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your, your playing and, and coaching career, please. Uh, hi, Tom. Hi, Steve. Hi, Alex. Um, a really late developer into football, so I didn't really play football till I was 18. Um, got scouted pretty quickly, uh, joined Fulham at 22, um, and then left there to go to Bournemouth, and then, and then I spent over 20 years there, so I spent that amount of time at one club, which is quite unique even now. Doing various jobs from player, coach, manager, bus driver, um, groundsman, community officer, physio, you name it, I've done it. Playing, it was, I think it was always, because I came into it late, I was always worried that I was on a short-term contract and what were we going to do afterwards? So that was really built into me. Um, so I did every possible course I possibly could from HGV to bricklaying to you name it, I did it. Um, just because the, I just thought, well, I, this could either finish because of injury or just because I'm not good enough. So anyway, but uh, so that was that was how I got into coaching. Did all my coaching badges really quickly. And Bournemouth's quite an isolated place, I know, but really, it's um, so I spent all my influences at that time were probably things that I saw that I didn't agree with, rather than what I agreed with. And it was that's for you know that's where my. Um, and I hate the word philosophy, but your coaching influences were um, were born, I suppose. Um, so my coaching journey came from just really developing my own, to be honest, actually going, well, if I was ever a coach or a manager, I'd do this, I'd do that, and then got a chance to actually implement it and have as, has as many successes as had failures. So this is not a, you know, this is not a one cap fits all in coaching. What works with one team doesn't work with another. Um, up to the present day, really, um, I think at this at this moment in time, my coaching journey, there is I can't believe how much stuff is out there nowadays from what I was, you know, social media and Twitter and podcasts and this. It's almost like, how do you make sense of all this? And that's probably where I am at the minute. How do I make sense of all this stuff? I've got all this stuff that I've done that's worked sometimes. Um, it's evolved. But there's all this new things coming out that is, sometimes I think it's just packages to... To, to make it look more more uh, difficult than what it actually is, and sometimes it it is. It's a new way of looking at things. I'm just I'm just at the minute in in a sort of sort of research project with a friend of mine about um, uh, effective questionings with players. You know, how do we how do we ask more effective questions questions of players? Um, and that's been it is fascinating to actually if you change the lens of what you're looking at it and change the actual question that you ask somebody what you get back from it um so that's again it's probably probably as as confusing as my coaching journey is at the minute it's probably the most exciting as well 
That's great. And I know you, you've got someone to make sense of all this with you at, uh, at Portsmouth, and that's Dr. Alex Twitchin, who I just knew was Twitch back in the 1980s when we played football together at Love University. So when I realised you were a doctor, I was uh, no, I'm very pleased for you, Twitch, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to call you, Dr. Alex Twitch. But, I, uh, to be honest, Tom, I, I rarely, rarely use the term doctor. Uh, I try and only use it when when I have to, uh, because I did my PhD in a subject completely different to football. It was on the social history of safety in motor racing, because it's like, <laughs> as you know, motor racing is another sport that I'm interested in. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really not into labels and things like that. So, uh, yeah, strange actually hearing someone refer to me as doctor. Um, but there we go. So, yeah, so we were together at, at university in Loughborough and, that's kind of where I started coaching. So I started coaching at a relatively young age, over 30 years ago now. Um, did the FA prelim as it was then. And I guess I was really lucky that I lived quite close to Bisham Abbey, the National Sports Centre uh, down in Buckinghamshire. And uh, through probably a, a mutual friend of ours, Tim Barry, he put me in touch with our co county coaching rep, uh, Jim Kelman. And so I started coaching on the FA Fun Weeks at Bishop Abbey with Jim. And that was just like a brilliant experience. You know, I had so much respect for Jim and the way he approached coaching um, and such like. And since then, it's, it's just kind of evolved. And, um, you know, I've kind of done quite a lot of tutoring for the FA, uh, mentoring work for the FA. I've kind of managed a non-league team, been a technical director at Brighton's Gale Centre of Excellence. Um, yeah, just done all sorts of things connected to developing players, uh, but developing coaches. And I've been now at Portsmouth for the last four years. Um, and I kind of describe it not necessarily as a journey, but as a jigsaw puzzle. And um, all the pieces kind of fit together, or at least... I try and keep them fitting together. Sometimes they drop out, but yeah, it's uh, putting those pieces into the jigsaw and seeing the bigger picture. So so how does the jigsaw piece of Alex Twitchin and the jigsaw piece of Sean O'Driscoll fit together then? How do you work together in order to try and, and make the, the coaching and the, the development at Portsmouth as good as it can possibly be? Uh, I, I actually see, I think it was at a coaching conference in Derby um, not, not a, a sports one, not a, not a football one. Um, and I, th I don't know whether Alex was one of the speakers, but I was sort of reading some of the biogs and uh, found out that he was one of the part-time coaches at um, Portsmouth, which obviously surprised me as well as pleased me. So I actually gave him a, got his number, gave him a ring and just said, look, I've got this job at Portsmouth um, and just picked his brains really. And I've been doing that ever since, to be honest. We sort of share ideas and... Um, which how it should be, you know, there's no, you know, hierarchical stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, I use the doctor just to, <laughs> we're a cat three club, so to get a PhD student or a doctor on, on your staff is quite good. So I'll use that sometimes just to, uh, just, make, to, just to make our programme look a little bit better than it actually is. So, Sean, how would you describe the programme that you're now running at Portsmouth compared to, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, at Bournemouth and, and the other clubs, uh, Nottingham Forest and so on. How does how it different? Is it is it a much more um, modern approach um, or is it still using some of the old school values? 
I think we've tried to simplify it. I, th- I think my my remit, I suppose, was or my my um, presentation, whatever you want to call it, was you know the, the game's quite simple. You know, you've got the ball or you haven't got the ball. So you know, I've, I've sort of waded through curriculums that are you know pages and pages long and volumes and volumes that nobody ever really looks at. Um, so it was a case of what can we can we come up with something that's really simple that people that we can empower the coaches to actually work with it. So not just a free for all, you can just do what you want, but um just something that um you know they they can work with it's easy easily digestible uh and uh, and something that they can evolve. So so that's what it was really. I was just going if I was a coach and I was and I wanted a I wanted to um you know work in a in an academy and I needed some guidance on what I needed to do then what would I what would I um, imagine or what would I uh, appreciate and so that's what we really did uh, and I've tried to evolve it um, it's still in its, in its infancy but it's you know it's nothing's ever you know part-time coaches is quite difficult to to, to you know we've got a limited amount of time um, and we've only got a really small um, full-time staff uh, being a Cat 3 club, which is going through a massive change, which is really an opportunity for us. So, the, so we've got a new um, we've got a new chief exec, we've got a new academy manager, and now we've got a new um, team manager. So it is an opportunity to try and align everything, um, even from an understanding point of view, to actually say, look, you know, we're, we're trying to look at players first and foremost in their, uh, how they behave. So whenever I was buying a player, selling a player, Talking about a player, very quickly we get onto all the attributes that he possesses, his character, what he was like, his you know commitment, all those words that, that really everybody would have an opinion on. Uh, the tech tech stuff was usually quite easy to sort of yeah, everybody sees what they see. But the player as a or we've even tried to we were we were talking this morning about trying to move, trying to take the word player out of everything. And call them people or boys or you know just so everybody talks about the person rather than the player because it's just habit of talking about the player and you forget uh, and, every, and everybody will say you've got to know Johnny to coach Johnny and my question would be well, what do you need to know about him that you know we sort of we have the initial the initial concept but um you know that's where Alex comes in and for me is going Alex I get we have to know the player or the person, but what do we actually need to know? What is it that's crucial that we need to know? Do I need to, do I, do I really need to know his mom and dad's name? Do I need to know what, what is it about? Or is there, is there no template to say, yeah, we just need to know him better rather than digging down and going, actually, if we, if all, if we knew this about all our players, then we would get a better, we would develop them in a far more superior way. But, so, they're, so, they're, so Alex, they're, what, Let's bring in Alex then and get him to answer that question of, of when Sean says to you, what do we need to know about the people that are in the academy? What what do you answer? Yeah, I think for me, it's a question about, okay, we talk about coaching as essentially developing and building and sustaining relationships with our athletes. And there's been quite a lot of work done on coach-athlete relationships and what have you. But, you know, as Sean says, what exactly is it that we need to know about the, the, the people that we're coaching? You know, how deep does that relationship have to be? And in what direction, what trajectory does that relationship have, have to be? So for me, 
I don't really want to know every single thing about a person's life. You know, what I want to know is what do I need to know about that person in order to help them develop their ability and their capabilities to fulfill the talent and the potential that they have. And so is it a question now of how do they respond when they make mistakes in the game? You know, what level of confidence do they have? What enhances their confidence? What motivates them? You know, are they quite intrinsically motivated? Do some players need a little bit of extrinsic motivation? Um, so it's what are the aspects of an individual which are particularly relevant to their development and their performance as a footballer? And that's what I think I need to know and build the relationship. So if I know a player makes a mistake in a game, how is that player going to respond to that mistake? Are they going to go into their shell? Are they going to hide a little bit? You know, which players are my leaders? And why are they the leaders? How do they manage that? Um, you know, if you've got a particularly sort of vocal player, does that upset another player just because they're a slightly different character? So when I talk about building relationships and knowing about the people that you coach, it's finding out what is essential for the task that you've got to do, which is to develop develop their ability. So, and I don't think there is a template. I don't think there is a theory or set of concepts or a model or a checklist which enables you to do that i think it's just your skill and your craft as a coach and the way that you get to know your players and my, my, and my first question to alex after that and he's just articulated things that i can't articulate but i'd ask him tell me what a mistake is yeah <laughs> so they're the, they're the type of things that i'm I'm wrestling with what's a mistake? What is is if somebody's so, intent? Somebody's intention is to do something and it doesn't come off. Is that a mistake or is it? And I'm not, and I'm and I think we we both agree that there's a lot of coaching stuff that gets polarised. You're either in one camp or the other, and we're trying to say there's no wrong or right in any of this. We're not saying we've just got to try and because there's so much stuff around there. We 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 resort. We we just revert back to conventional wisdom. But how much is that is convention and how much is that is wisdom, which is, which is a great add-on to that. You know, we just do things because we've always done them. There's actually no wisdom in it because, you know, we just, again, I, I, I've, that happens all the time. Every day I can see things where I go, what we do things? Why are we doing them? And then we just always do them. And a really good example was we haven't got a goalkeeper coach at the minute because he's going to the first team. But one of my questions to the coaches this morning was, why do the goalkeeper coaches always take the goalkeepers out early in every club I've ever been? And every goalkeeper coach that I've ever talked to, I kept I say to them, why don't, why don't you ever take the back four with the goalkeeper out early? And because <laughs> it's never done, so it's never done. Um, uh, so there were things like that that annoy me as well as um, intrigue me, I suppose. And what about you, Steve, over there in Connecticut? What are your thoughts on the discussion so far? I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued, honestly. Uh, I feel like I'm with family, first and foremost, from bunking into <laughs> Craven Cottage to watch Sean play and taking courses online at the Open University and helping you build a PowerPoint <laughs> for the convention. <laughs> I feel like I'm with family. Uh, I, I think it's, it's important as a coach educator for US soccer you know, with our grassroots program, and we are very focused on the guided questions, the keywords that we use. We we like to create a reality-based environment where experiential learning becomes the teacher. So players actually learn by doing, uh, by failing and applying. 
Uh, we like to plant the seeds, but we don't disturb the decision-making process. We, we look at that, uh, going back to what Alex was saying, is we look at that, and, and even Sean was saying about, you know, what is a mistake? We don't like to look at them as mistakes. We look at them as teachable or learning moments. Is it a moment for us to intervene and teach, or is it a moment that the player is actually going to learn from without us interrupting that process? So we do like the questions. We do like to know who the individual is. We want to know who the individual is because our setup's slightly different. We're not an academy, uh, but we do play at a very high level on both the boys and girls side. So knowing who that individual is when they get to us, who is in front of us at that given time? You know, what was their car ride like to training? What was the car ride like to a game? Because sometimes we travel two, three hours for our games. And when we get there, that kid could be exhausted because they've been, you know, had mom or dad in their ear. Uh, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that in today's game. So knowing who's in front of us is, is key so that we can actually work with them as individuals uh, and then put them into that collective environment. So leading the player and then leading the team. Yeah, that's great. And, and let's just now go on the grass, Sean. So if I were to go down to Portsmouth, um, visit the academy and you've got some players out there um, training together with yourself or, or one of the other coaches, now what would be the characteristics that, that I would recognize that would be Portsmouth style. You know, you're trying to develop a simple way. You said you, you want to know information about the, the players, uh, but, but what would you say are the, the main characteristics that you're trying to instill at the Academy at Portsmouth? I think from a coaching point of view, it's a case of, um, and again, this is just my experiences of coaching um, um, and it's changed a lot, obviously, but I can remember as a, as a, I was 22 before I was actually coached and all the coach said to me was all the things I couldn't do. And I, I found that you signed me from a non-league club and you're just telling me all the things I couldn't do. And I was a bit perplexed to go. I actually said to him, what's the point you signed me? What's the point if I can't do all these things? I'm 22. I mean, I'd rather, so, you know, so obviously a strength-based thing I think is, is, is probably a, um, a, a better a better start what can we look at people um for what they can do and and also and we've started this with some cpd of trying to ask the players what they want the coaches to notice so if i was a player what would i want my coach to notice about my performance or about my play to try and empower the players more into their own development because it's really whether we like it or not it's really hierarchical and it's really coach led led we're we're the ones that perceived to have all the information and they and then we just give content to the players and then we expect them to make sense of it and learn and when they don't we just blame the player not not looking at how we've delivered it and what we're trying to do you know so we've tried to do simple things by like trying to look at sessions whatever the sessions might be and and trying to go well is this is this a coaching for learning session or is this a coaching for performance session or is this a coaching for competition? So trying to simply go um, sort of look at a session in a different lens to go, well, if it's a learning session and the boys know actually we're in, we're in a learning mode here and it might be more interactive, it might be more, you know, letting them try giving them scenarios or, it's, or is it performance where really – we're just trying to underprint the things that we think they've learned and see if they can learn it by adapting it to a different situation. So the, the principles that we've taught in the learning phase, 
when we go to the performance phase, can they can they take those same principles and throw it into something different? So, you know, so players don't just get better at in a certain possession drill or in a certain session. So they get really good at doing this because they know it. They know all the the cues that they come about it. So they just get better at it. But they, all they do is get better at that one particular thing. So then can we throw it into something completely different? Can they take all the principles that are in there and apply it somewhere else? Um, so that, and then in competition is, well, okay, then in, we're trying to act just as a prompt or a guide within the competition phase to go, you know, I don't know what the, what the opposition might or might not do because we don't know, but can you actually, can you then start applying some of the stuff, um, you know, when you're trying to win the game or, when, you know, when we're playing against another team? So, yeah, it's that, it, 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 it probably sounds easier talking about it and writing it down on papers than it is actually doing. And and I think sometimes the players get, not don't get confused, they get, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, it seems to be a radical way of doing it and they sort of revert back to giving you answers that they know they've always asked. And then when you ask a different question to a boy that you're not, that he's not used to, then they really find it difficult because the standard answer is not going to fit this. They have to go and you're trying to get down to what they really think or understand about what you're trying to do. Um, and some some players, like everything else, some coaches fly with it and think it's the best thing since sliced bread. And some people just go, just tell me what, just tell me what to do, Sean. And I'll do it for me. <laughs> just have that balance, I suppose. I, I found that right away through my coaching and managing career. You know, I'd have players who were just. Sean, where have you been for the last 10 years of my life? And players were going, Sean, just tell me. I just, you know, I've, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just tell me. I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I'll just do what you want me to do. So, yeah. well, that, that's the thing, because you're interested in learning and you've used the, that word a few times, learning. And it's interesting to me that in your title, as well as in Dr. Alex's title, you've got the word learning. Um, and in my experience, there's a, there is a big difference between learning and just following instructions. Yeah, and uh, you know what, Alex? Can you can you sort of expand on that yeah. really, and, and give okay. us your experience of what is the difference between learning and performance, of just following instructions, being told? I know Steve mentioned earlier about experiential learning, which which I'm a, I'm a, in favour of much more than just being told by a coach what to do. Um, I think it's really un- important that coaches understand what learning is and how kids learn. So just to sort of circle back a little bit to what Sean was saying about what would you expect to see if you came down to Portsmouth and watched uh, one of our coaching sessions. I think in essence, what we're trying to produce are young people who are adaptable problem solvers and effective decision makers. And they take ownership for the decisions that they make on the pitch and, and they can understand the problems which are occurring on the pitch. They can think for themselves in terms of the potential solutions and as well as that, they compose the other team um, problems. So that's really what we're trying to, to develop. Players that can think for themselves, identify problems, solve problems, cause problems for the other team and make the appropriate decisions in that context. So I, I tend to, you know, so for example, um, when I'm thinking about designing and I would say I design a learning environment. I wouldn't say that I design sessions. I design a learning environment. And at the heart of that environment is a problem that the players have somehow got to identify and begin to come up with some solutions to. 
And it's really hard as the coach to step back and not give them the solutions and let them find out or explore for themselves what those solutions potentially are. Um, so I think that would be the first thing that you would recognise that I wouldn't say, right, tonight we're doing passing, we're doing shooting, we're doing crossing. It's I'm creating an environment where there's a problem out of which those kind of technical aspects and tactical aspects will fall. But it's not specifically addressing the kind of tech tech stuff. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is that you would probably see that it's quite game related. Um, so I kind of work from the principle that if we can make the practice as representative of the game as possible, then we will see the transfer from the training form, if you like, into the game form. So hopefully it would look representative in some way of, of the game. But that's where we would probably start to use some constraints in order to manipulate that environment so we could put a spotlight on certain aspects or we could challenge players to think in certain ways about something. So it would never just be a game in terms of goals at either end and two teams, even size, off you go play. You, know, you, you would see an environment which is constrained and manipulated in some way to either pose the problem or direct the, um, the player's attention to particular aspects of, of the environment. So to give you one quick example of that, which we did a practice a few weeks ago, or a session a few weeks ago, where um, we put two sort of zones at the end of the end of the pitch and to score a goal, the players had to dribble the ball or run with the ball. Let's just call it travel. Travel with the ball between the two cones. If they did that, they got one point. Then what we did in the middle part of the pitch, we created a zone and we put two just like pop-up um, goals in, in that zone. But the only way you could score in those goals was if you travelled into that zone. Okay, so whether you're running with the ball, dribbling with the ball, whatever it might be. If you scored in those kind of um, pop-up goals, you got three points. So now you're beginning to incentivize dribbling from, say, the back third into the middle third. But you've also got the other option now of attacking the goal at either end, uh, sorry, at one end of the pitch, but that's only worth one goal. So you're now creating an environment where you're setting them a problem, if you like, and out of that comes decisions about, you know, do we actually play a longer pass over the middle part of the pitch into a front player who can control it, receive, and then travel and attack the goal at the end? We get one point for that. Or do we be brave and try and dribble with the ball in the middle part of the pitch and get into the zone where if we put it into the back of the little pop-up goal, we get three points? So there's no right or wrong in that. It's just helping the players to understand in any particular moment in that practice what, what the most appropriate decision might be. And what was interesting about that practice was that if you think about it, the team that are out of possession, they're defending the middle part of the pitch. So they're effectively going to press quite high up the pitch. So you don't have to tell them to press high up the pitch. It's just the design of the environment encourages them to do that. Because otherwise you just allow the team with the ball to dribble in, get three goals and boom, that's it. So now you create some space in behind because they're pressing high up the pitch. So we had a situation where our front player or the front player for, the, for one of the team, when they were in possession, always came short and kind of just wanted to play on the edge of this kind of middle area. So it meant that the players at the back who were in possession were like really pressed and they kept on losing the ball. 
So you kind of just observe and then you might just sort of pause it and say, you know, the players at the back, what do you want from your front player there? Well, you want them to play a little bit higher up the pitch. So we didn't have an offside ruling, so there was no restriction in that way, because that now gives you the opportunity to play over the top of the middle zone and into a front player and get through the press. And then that front player, if it's a 1v1, now can you take that player on, get a point, one point goal, or actually can you come back into the three point area and score a three point zone? So that's an example of what we mean by creating a learning environment where we use constraints to manipulate the task, um, the problems that the players have got, and the technical stuff falls out of that. Um, so whilst you're encouraging a bit of dribbling, you've also got the kind of you know, the support play, the passing and, and everything else. Yeah, and that sounds like a fantastic game. And a lot of what I talk about is, is exactly the same. The, the main part of my role is before the session when I'm creating the games, I'm, I've got the knowledge of my group and what I want to do. And then I design a game to get the outcome, um, which is exactly what you just described. But, you know, you're an experienced coach. Sean's an experienced coach. Steve's an experienced coach. And so am I. And we've got that confidence and we can be brave in order to create this because if it looks a bit difficult, it looks a bit untidy or a bit messy, then we've got the experience and the confidence to say to our boss or the parents who don't understand it, or even the players themselves, we, we can explain it. But how do you deal with a young coach who wants to go back to this safe, what Sean was talking about earlier, it's safe to say, well, let's do um, a possession session, nice and safe. We'll have 10 against two and we'll pop the ball around all the time and it'll be, we'll have lots of success. It'll all look nice and neat, but there's not actually a great deal of learning going on, but I look good as a coach because it's successful. So how do you help your young coaches at Portsmouth to, to be brave and to design these sorts of games? Well, one, one of the things we've done is, is, especially for me, who's sort of looks at a lot of sessions and I don't really want to wade through X's and O's all the time because it's, it's confusing. It's, so I, I asked the coaches to do a pre-session template, which is a bit of linked to our academy framework that says basically tell me what tell me what phase you're working in so if you're working in an in possession or out possession phase um tell me what transitions you're going to use so i think that's i think that the way we construct a session and the way it starts i think is is a underused um or under not underused it's not understood that if a coach stands at the side of the practice with a load of balls and passes it always to the blue team every time, then then that doesn't happen in a game. So I, we call that static transition. So we ask, the, and if it's just a random, um, like it would be in a game, we'd call it a fluid transition. So we ask them, so what are you going to use fluids or static transitions? Uh, basically, really to start the game, to start the practice off. Um, because that makes a difference. Uh, and then we'd say to them, or in the pre-session template, tell me what problems you want in the players to solve and what decisions you expect them to make. So rather than spending out of, you know, spending hours on X's and O's and he passes there and then he runs there and I want him in there, I'm trying to get them to think probably what what's the end look like? What are we trying to, what's the problem that we, because if we don't, if we want problem solvers and decision makers, then, Training has to be about solving problems and decision-making. Um, and then we're trying to go the next level is what? tell me what constraints you're going to use to achieve what you want to achieve. And 
that's probably where Alex will probably have a, a, a more sophisticated answer than me, but um, where the coaches struggle, they, they see constraints as they don't think beyond, um, I want um, I want the ball to be moved quickly, so I'll put a, two, two, a, a restrictive touch on, on the practice. But I'm going, but you're taking away... You're taking away a lot of decisions if you take, you know, so if, if the if if he's, if he's only got two touch, you constrain the decision making. Which I'm not again, we're not saying it's wrong, but you understand what you're what you're giving away to get what you want. So if uh, you know, if you want to do a session that says we want to change the point of point of attack by moving the ball wide, but your constraint says that every every time Johnny gets it, he can only pass the ball to this player who's standing in the wide position, then the constraint sort of the constraint just is just is just really another instruction for the player. So that's where we are at the minute. How do we how do we um how do we implement better constraints into a practice and understanding of what it gives and what we're losing? And not saying one's wrong or right, but from my point of view, I can go to a practice with their pre-session template and go, that's yeah, I get what they're trying to do. They're going to do it in this side of the pitch, but they're constrained and I can ask them. Why are you using that constraint? And if they've got a why, then I go, that's fine, I get it. But if it's not, well, I don't really know because then then I can I don't really want to go in and you know start telling people what to do. I just go, well, let's maybe let's look at that constraint again and see what we can use that actually gets what you want to get that allows the player to have multiple decisions, but the decisions that you want him to want him to make. Um, that's where that's where uh, see, I find that really fascinating. I think young coaches find that a little bit scary, like you said, because it's they're almost well. If it if it doesn't work, what happens? And um, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of talking to your coaches before the session, possibly during the session and after the session. So that level of support um, is needed in order for them to to understand what you're wanting them to do and to get them to be confident enough and feel supported enough to go and try things that possibly. They feel a little bit in in uh, incapable of doing or, or insecure about. Yeah, I think it's more. If I'm honest, I think it's more they're institutionalised into doing things. I, I, I came into football at 22, and I got coached by somebody who was coached by somebody who was coached by somebody who was coached by somebody, and I was the world's worst player. I mean, if you speak to Harry Redknapp, I had Harry Redknapp for 10 years. If you speak to Harry about me, he'll go. I was a pain in the neck because he'd put on a session that he, uh, he would say, we're going to do a possession session. And I'd be going, this, Harry, this isn't a possession session. This is a chase ball session. We're, we're, you know what I mean? We don't get, we, we can't get three passes in because the opposition are just closing us down. And because then he would go, he would then go mad at us because we couldn't pass the ball. And I'm going, actually, but the other side of the game, we're closing down like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. So I, my, I perceive the session as something completely different than what at that time the coach perceived the session because I was in it. Um, so that I, I've sort of had, and, I, and I've had a really um, uh, probably a bad habit of actually taking the rules of the session, which I think players, all players do now is just listen to the rules and they don't go that next step to go. And Alex talked about the game that he, that he devised. What's the strategy that I need to win this game? Because that's what they want to do. They want to win it. And we, I don't think we coach strategy very well, or we don't actually acknowledge that everything you do, there's a strategy towards it. 
because I think I was I was late into football, I I was quite good at actually going. Actually, if we're doing a, a 10v2 practice, like you've just said, I, if I was the two in the middle, I just wouldn't run around. I'd just go, what's the point? There's 10 people here. I'm not going to – I might run around, but I might do it at the right time on the poor pass, but I just wouldn't run around willy-nilly. So this is pointless. If, if I was in a game and we were 10 against two would you? and I had to protect a goal, would you expect me to run after the ball? No, you'd go, like, that's the best we can to protect this goal. So I, I sort of used – I don't know, maybe because I wasn't coached as a younger age, but I sort of took that into my, um, <laughs> when I was coached, I was always looking for the, not the easy way, but how do I manipulate this constraint to actually get the best out of it? So I was constantly thinking, oh, I don't need to do that. I need to do this, which is to annoy the coaches like you wouldn't believe. And I'm trying to say now that actually the coach needs to be, should applaud somebody like that. Somebody who does that, they should go, oh, fantastic, you're thinking of yourself. And then it's up to the coach to, to actually manipulate the, the practice to actually make it more difficult for me to do what I'm doing without taking away the decision making that I want. And that's, I think that's the difficult part of it. Yeah. Um, so it's more you, you setting things up so that the players perform and then the coach has to respond to that yes. rather than, yes. rather than the coach just instructing, delivering command style. Yeah. I know everything. This is what I need to get across to you. And it being very, very coach centered. Yeah, and I think, like you said, sometimes the players think it should be coach-centred because that's all they've ever known, um, you know, and and parents think it should be coach-centred and the coach is in the middle pointing and shouting and doing all that, then nothing's happening. Um, but, it, yeah, I, 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 that's how I learned by some – and it was by default, I suppose. People put it on a practice that I actually picked the holes out of. <laughs> so I could go, this, you know, so a, a really good one was be – you, you sort of some sort of zone and it goes into a zone and there's five players or whatever and if they get five passes in you get another defender and if they get another five passes you get another defender but if I was the first man in I wouldn't even, I'd let them get five passes in and then I'd get my I'd look at the, the area that we're working in and going mm, is two enough I'm not sure let them get another ten passes five passes in now we've got three defenders now we'll go and close them down <laughs> yeah. we used to drive the coaches mad <laughs> Because they wanted me to run around like a, excuse my language, a blue ass fly. What's the point? Of, <laughs> I'm five against one, and I've got, I get three extra players if I just wait a bit. Patience, which is what you want in football. So, yeah. That's clever. That, that's, that's clever. And you, you know, and sometimes coaches don't want players to be clever. Whereas that's what you seem to be at Portsmouth. You're trying to develop clever players, decision makers. Steve, what what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm loving listening to this, and I, and I think Sean's been listening to the Dalai Lama, who said no the rules, <laughs> who, who said no the rules well, so you can break them effectively. Um, yeah, here, yeah. Here, here in the US, I'll, I'll write that down, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> here in the US, we have a couple of methodologies that we use, and and for our grassroots players, it's play practice play, which really is a constraints led approach. It it's where the game becomes the starting point that drives the changes in behaviour. Uh, it allows reflective practices and decision-making for the player, uh, the team and the coach. So when we talk about the play practice play, we work, we work that really with the grassroots level, which is pretty much anybody uh, that plays the game. But then when we get into the higher levels of, of play, we talk about Ollie, which is orientation, learning and implementation. And, and both methodologies present the problem to the team. So with the, with the Ollie method, we, the orientation becomes we work with our non-focus group. 
So the coach actually sets the practice up for the non-focus group. The focus group is really, by design, who we're hoping to influence. They now have to orientate themselves to the situation that we've presented. Then we then go into a learning phase where we actually work with the focus group once they've identified the problem and how to solve it collectively. And then from the learning phase, we go into the implementation, which is the application of the methods we're using to teach them. So when you think about learning and performance, or I think of learning and performance, I think it's a symbiotic relationship. The performances can be measured. They can be observed. Uh, as coaches, we can see how much of what we've been teaching is actually being applied during that performance. So as the players continue to learn uh, and acquire the necessary skills needed to enhance their performance, I think this is where it becomes very important that as coaches, we have a holistic autonomous support approach because that now becomes the method by which players can identify with the decisions they make and the consequences that those decisions have on the desired outcomes. And those outcomes can be different from training session to training session. Uh, and this is where we talk about the present the problem, address it, and then apply it. So I, I'm just, I'm loving listening to this. I think it's, I, I was meant for this, listening to this one. Just to add to Steve's point there, I see learning and performance on a continuum. Um, because I think my, um, I haven't had a lot of experience of working with professional players, but the experience that I've had is they still want to learn. You know, I've worked with a, um, a professional player who's in his early 30s coming towards the end of his playing career, yet he still wants to learn and improve and develop as a player. And I think for younger players, so I think it's where you, where you put the emphasis. Is this more towards performance or is this more towards learning? I think when we work with younger players, generally speaking, we want the emphasis to be um, more on the learning, but not at the expense of the performance, because I think the performance gives you an indicator of what the players are learning. And then as you get more to the sort of, you know, senior level, the sharper end where performances matter and winning games becomes important, you know, the performance becomes a bit more important, but not at the expense of the learning. Um, so I think you just slide along this continuum between learning and performance all the time, um, depending upon the context and the needs of your players, you know, the needs of the people that you're working with. I've been reading something, Alex, that says that performance is a poor indicator of learning. It can be. It can be. It depends on what, yeah, it depends on what you're trying to, I suppose, look at in the performance. So this, where, this is where, Tom, that I, from my point of view, my inquisitive mind goes, well, I get what Alex says and, it's, and, and Steve, and then I go and then I read something that says completely the opposite, that actually learning may not be happening. They might just be getting good at performing, but not learning. Uh, and then you just go, oh, my God, now where do I go from here <laughs> as a coach? And you, that you go back to that conventional wisdom and you go, mm, it's just easy just to go back to what convention is convention. Uh, and I've, 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 even even today, I've asked one of the one of the coaches that has been working today that have has whatever you coach today has there ever are you coaching them new information or are they or are you coaching something they already know and and he's, and he's gone I've, I've not coached anything that they they do not know so he, he was doing a two v two so he was doing cover and balance and this that and the other. And these kids have been, these are first-year apprentices, scholars, have done practices like that for the last five or six years. So 
what what new information can we give or is it asking the players to look at the practice in a different way to actually get the learning that they can apply to their situation in whatever or they're not they're in their position a situation in the game and they can recognize it i find that again fascinating because it's do like, you have to, but you do have to make something new all the time you know is isn't there um, a benefit in keeping certain things the same? I mean, Eric Harrison, the legendary Manchester United U team coach, every day the players used to do the ball routine where you'd have 12, 15 players, you'd have three or four balls and it would just be passing and receiving constantly under a lot of pressure, looking over your shoulder, receive the ball in different techniques. Every day they did that for 10, 15 minutes. And that was just that repetition. So he, Eric wasn't giving them new information. He wasn't doing a new practice but he was putting them under pressure and putting them in situations that they would find in a game constantly. So surely there's value in that as well. Everything doesn't have to be new. Everything doesn't have no, to be new. Uh, and again, I, I agree. And, I, and I could, we could have a, a discussion about unopposed practices and this, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm really conscious of not polarising anything. All I'm saying is that I've just asked the question, at what point do we ever give or, or are we just doing things like you say and that's just repetition without repetition? Uh, and when in a in a coaching week would we ever give them new information? And what would be new information for an eighteen year old boy? What would be new information? I mean, I've coached international players and um, you know senior professionals, and it's very rare you tell them something that they don't know. I can tell them something to apply it in a completely different. So I, I had a centre half once that, um, and he was over. Well, he was and he's just over. Uh, early 30s and um, he, he'd he been told or coached that he had to win every header and, I, and so I've come into the club and and, and I'm going I, I get yeah you're a centre half you need to win your headers but you also need to make a decision on the headers that you can win not just go for every ball and get done however you get done so it's like so I'm telling oh, we 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 played against this um, centre half in a previous club that was that, and we we we'd analysed it and said, look, he wants to win every header, and you can take him under the ball because he just it, the ball goes and he'll just go he'll just go wherever the centre centre forward is if he if he thinks the centre forward is going to go for the ball. So all we did was run him under the ball, and we just got in. We beat him five in the end. All and all we did was move the centre half. So I, when I telling i say look that's what we did so all, all i'm telling you is win the ones that you make a decision that you can win and it's okay not to because if if the, if the center forward just flicks it and you've not gone with him you just lands on your chest and you look a fantastic player they'll all look you know it's if you go with him and you miss time it or he's better than you in the air for, for any reason you look a poor player so you've got, and he's a you know early thirties, and he said, "You're sure you're the first person who's ever told me I have to win every header." And I went, "No, oh, yeah, I'm just telling you a different way of winning every header because you can't win every header; it's impossible. You win the headers that you need to win, and then we can judge you and go right. Yeah, you should have won. You know, he's five foot two, and you've missed da 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 da." But also, if if he's if he thinks he's got to win every header, there might be a header that he might win. But he decides not to go for it because he he might lose it, and then that's going to yeah. upset him. So he, he maybe is making poor decisions there because he's got this this idea that he's got to win everything. That Alex, one thing I want to ask you is about free play. 
because I'm I'm very much game based. Uh, I I love to set up practices that have got constraints and so on. But I'm also a big fan of of uh, free play. So um, certainly in the foundation phase at Manchester United, we give yep. the kids a lot of time free play. So we have, I mean, we had a World Cup last week. We we picked eight teams, six aside. They all there was very very little intervention from the coaches. Just fixtures go on at the beginning of sessions. We give them a lot of time to to experiment and be free. So you know, in in this world of practices where the, the coaches are designing them and, and they're relatively complicated at times. What role is there for just putting the putting the goals down and just saying to the kids, get on with it? Yeah, I think there's certainly a place for that. Um, the way we tend to do it down at Portsmouth is we might mix, say, two age groups together and we'll just let them play. We might do that as an 11v11. We might even do that as like a 6v6 and have a little bit of a tournament. And it's just... I think when, when we're setting out, like I try and think in terms of like six to eight week blocks and you kind of put your games in and, and then you think about, okay, what do we want to cover in this week? What do we want to do in this week? Can you find moments where you can have those kind of free play sessions? Um, in fact, I think one of the better learning experiences we had for our players last season was that um, on a Tuesday night, we would normally do a strength and conditioning session and then follow that up with a bit of a classroom analysis type session. But because of the COVID and the pandemic, we weren't allowed inside the building. So we just made use of the cages at the facility where we train. So it literally was free play for 45 minutes, just in like, you know, these small gold type, um, small sided game cages. And I actually thought that was a really useful session because like minimal intervention from me, let them play. And we kind of evolved that in the sense that one week it was just pure free play. They could just play. And then we might have the following week, we did it where we kind of imposed a few constraints, but we did it in like, okay, for the next 10 minutes, you can't use the sideboards. So if you know, put a line down, right. Uh, the next one, you can use the sideboards. So we just kind of, you know, changed it and manipulated it. But yeah, no, I think free play um, has its place. Um, and I think, you know, it's coming back to this point that nothing's right or wrong. As a coach, it's the kind of decisions you make about what is best to support the players that you have. Um, you know, and how do you put together a program um, which, which in a sense, structures their learning experience? Um, so I would, you know, I would never dismiss any kind of practice type because I think there can be a place for different practice types. So I'll use an unopposed repetitive type practice as part of our warm up for games just for five minutes, because I think in that situation, the players don't, you know, they just want to get a feel for the ball, don't they? They don't really want to make decisions. You know, they're thinking about the game, what's going to happen. So it just gets them going. And we just kind of do five, six minutes of a repetitive practice um, as part of our warm up. So I think it's just your skill, part of your craft um, in terms of thinking, okay, is this the appropriate type of practice to use in this situation? And what is the intention that I'm trying to achieve with this practice? And as well, when you're designing your practice, how much do you think about love of the game? How much do you think about excitement and joy and pleasure when when you're designing things? Yeah, so I have a big thing about the difference between fun and enjoyment. So I would never say training should be fun, but it should be enjoyable. Um, yeah, I, I think if you, if you don't enjoy 
training, then I don't think you're going to be motivated to learn much. Um, I mean, I played for someone and our training sessions were like, we just stood still for 45 minutes whilst he spoke to us and it, nobody enjoyed it. And I think nobody learned anything. You know, as soon as we went off the pitch, we just completely forgotten about what we were supposed to be doing. Um, so from my own experience, yeah, I think you've got to enjoy training um, as a player. And I think you've got to enjoy it as a coach. Yeah. Um, but you do you feel that responsibility as someone designing curriculum, designing sessions? Do you, you feel the responsibility, obviously, yeah, yeah. for yeah. learning? You know, that, yeah. that's obviously a key thing. But do you feel that responsibility to sometimes, okay, well, they might learn a bit more, but it's going to be a bit sterile. So we're going to introduce this because there's got to be that balance between learning sometime and pure enjoyment and, and pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, the only thing I would say is, you know, it comes back to this idea about representative design. I think players enjoy it when when training is played at the same intensity as games. So when it is you know, game realistic. Um, when there's competition as well. When, when there's competition, exactly. And, and we've done some focus groups recently with, with the players and we've been asking them, you know, can they remember a session where they think they've learned something or they've learned the most? Um, and they've almost by default said, ah, oh, that practice where it was like the game, you know, so they're in their mind, the practices where they're learning the most are the ones which are the most relatable and realistic to the game. Um, so that kind of, yeah, okay, I can see that. That's how I thought as a, as a player, how I thought I learned by playing in those situations. And um, Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Steve, any last comments before we, we wrap this up? Yeah, I'll just touch base on that free play. We, we do the play practice play methodology, which starts out with intentional free play. So we have an objective and a goal for the session. We set two fields up. The kids begin to arrive to practice. They start playing. And then as a coach, we use the guided questions and keywords to really emphasize what it is that we're hoping to achieve throughout the session without actually telling the kids what it is they're working on. Then we actually break and go into our core activity, which is a training session for about 30 minutes where we set up the training session. We let them play for 30 minutes, which is where the coach can now intervene you know, do their freeze moments, coaching in the flow. We train them and we opposite, or sorry, we opposite. We also set up what is known as a less challenging activity and a more challenging. So if it's too easy for them in the core activity, we can move into the more challenging. If it's too difficult, we can move into the less challenging. After that 30 minute period, we then go into the game. So we actually play the game. We set our formations based on what we're looking to achieve this, on the weekend. We use the laws of the game. So now we're actually applying the play one phase, the core activity into the game. And, and as a coach, we, we tend to sit back and actually watch that game unfold and, and just pull out the moments that we need to. So, you know, there, there's definitely something to that uh, free play. Uh, and it's very similar to the whole part, whole method that people used to use. Excellent. Great. Thanks for that. And, uh, you know, it's been a fascinating discussion and, uh, you know, we've obviously got some experts here, you know, great experience with Sean, with his his playing and, and managerial career. And that's, that's I'm sure, is, is benefiting all the players at Portsmouth at the moment. We've got an old university friend of mine who's now a doctor, which is fantastic to see. Congratulations on all that, Alex. And uh, it's good to speak to you again, Steve. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. 
and uh, participating in, in a fascinating discussion. And uh, now we'll hope to see everyone again on the Go Play Soccer podcast. Thanks a lot, gents. Thanks for listening. And if you have a question or comment for us, or if you'd like to take part in one of our podcasts, please email podcast at goplaysoccer.com.